So, um, yeah, let's start. I guess people will continue joining, but um, yeah, let. so here we'll try to keep this going once a week um, in the summer, we'll see, uh, but uh, usually we'll um, have these type of rooms again where we uh, discuss science news and maybe if we want one day to have like a deep dive room. Uh, we'll invite the speakers, but this is just, you know, weekly signs that we just read about in the last days. So it should be pretty, um, pretty new uh, within like uh, 10 days. Um, so, yeah, uh, and we'll learn together since this is new. Uh, most of the time I didn't have time to deep dive into it myself. But um, yeah, let's read the first one. Hi, Les. Uh, welcome. And uh, yeah, let's let's start. Did you want to say hi? Hi. Just hi. Hey, nice to see you here. Okay, let's start. Um, do octopuses dream? Observations of a sleeping octopus startling awake have scientists asking if it has nightmares or, or if it's just getting old. Uh, Costello, the, the octopus, may be the first evidence that the eight-armed invertebrates dreaming, a new study says. Scientists at the New York City Rockefeller University arrived at their lab one morning and found the male Brazilian reef octopus with his arms wrapped inside a piece of PVC pipe like he was trying to strangle it. The water in the tank was murky and, um, oh, I need a, I'm sorry. I know your pop-ups, right? It's horrible. Do you guys have that? Well, I don't have, I, I went into one news source today and I started getting them and I thought, oh, this is okay. how you feel. And then, and then another pop-up came that said, don't like these pop-ups Then download this app. And then the app said for 75% off today. <laughs> so anybody want to write that free app? We'll get it. Okay. So um, so this octopus has a name. That's, that's the yeah. best part. So I switched to have it open on my computer. So they seem to be fun. So let's see. Um, so what they saw surprised them. Costello appeared to emerge from sleep and then act off defensive behaviors before inking his tank. Such abnormal movements suggested Costello was recalling something stressful and possibly having nightmares, um, says Marcelo Magnasco, a biophysicist at Rockefeller, who co-authored stu the study on the new phenomenon on the website BioArch. It's on, on a preprint on the BioArchive. Uh, scientists did not observe the octopus repeating the same actions such as trashing, thrashing out wildly during the day. Um, and there's also a link to read why octopuses remind us so much of ourselves. The authors whose paper is not yet peer-reviewed caution this is evidence from a single animal and the reasons behind the episodes are speculative. The idea of octopuses dreaming is very compelling, 
an octopus expert, says an octopus expert at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology who wasn't involved in the research. Though the evidence presented in this paper isn't conclusive, the behavior is possible. Because this activity also has displays of clearly coherent patterns, which are also seen when animals are awake, they might be imagined as a replay which might suggest dreaming. Unexpected episode studies in several octopus species show they have different stages of sleep, including a quiet form of sleep in which the color-changing animal is a uniform or pale color, and an active stage when its skin flashes different patterns and textures. The researchers acquired Costello, who was legally wild-caught from a supply in Florida Keys, February 2021. After witness, and there's a video <clears throat> included, if you want to check it out. After witnessing the octopus' first unusual episodes, the team examined 52 days of ca ca uh, camera footage and um, searching for similar patterns in which Costello was stationary or asleep before abruptly changing his body movement, failing his tentacles in a disordered way, or performing some kind of interpredatory response, such as inking. They, um, they recorded, for instances, when the octopus was asleep before awakening and showing erratic and violent behaviors and inking in two of them. In one episode, for example, Costello turned deep red, spun around on the floor of the tank several times and thrashed his tentacles before releasing a large cloud of dark in. This is how octopus act when they are attacked by eels or are fighting each other. The animal is clearly frantically trying to get away from something. It's possible the octopus was experiencing something akin to a sleep disorder or nightmares, <clears throat> such as relieving past traumas, the authors suggest. Costello arrived with damage to two of his limbs likely from encounters with predators, ones that might stick in his memory. We are not trying to in any way, shape or form give the impression that this is an open and shut case, but ignoring this as a possibility would be foolhardy. A sign of aging. It's easy to borrow concepts from what we know of humans and lay them onto animals, both <clears throat> very different and evolutionary distant from us. Uh, but we have, uh, but um, some form of sleep seems to be very general across animals, but we have no idea what is going on in their brains. The one hypothesis um, is um, from the evolutionary biologist uh, that says the aberrant behavior is typical of an octopus undergoing senescence, the natural period of deterioration and decline before death. <clears throat> this indeed Costello's hypermobile arms and disorganized movements point to aging, as do his loose skin and visible lesions. Searching for answers, determining whether octopus could dream would require a solid evidence base um, of what happens in the brain when octopus sleep. Uh, there's so much to know about the neurological basis of sleep in invertebrates before anyone could reasonably make suppositions about dreaming. Nevertheless, the authors suggest monitoring octopuses in labs around the clock could reveal similar episodes that may otherwise go unnoticed. If it was the case that sleep and dreams are somehow universal across a lot of animals, 
then it would be a really fascinating thing to try to understand why. So I think, yeah, it's a really fascinating topic. Dreams, why we dream and, you know, how evolutionary conserved it is. Or maybe, does it have to do with conscious animals? Like if you have enough connectivity of the system and enough complexity, uh, there's a theory that, you know, out of these two factors, they are high enough that, uh, conscious thinking uh, emerges and then if that goes along with dreaming to basically digest all the these memories and so on so yeah it would be really interesting and maybe it would be a better way of testing for consciousness awareness and so forth than this very traditional mirror test because not not every animal is physically able to recognize itself in the mirror just because how the eyes are positioned and things like that it which doesn't mean that they still wouldn't you know are not self-aware and conscious is just a physical ability that they don't have like it would be you know the same assumption as if um yeah, it's it's just a flaw, a flawed way of testing for consciousness and self-awareness. So maybe testing for animals have dreams, if there's a correlation, if it would be a better way to do it. So yeah, please go ahead with comments if people have comments. I see that there are a couple of comments in the chat. Um, James Craig says, reminds me of the scientists studying bees categorizing activities as play. So I'm curious if you mean not uh, recognizing what the activity of bees actually was or considering it to be that they were communicating when you say play. And um, Abyss says, I wonder if voltage-gated calcium channels in their brains were, are activated, inducing brain-wide delta waves, much like how inferior, I don't think you mean olive, um, and basal ganglia do in mammals. Interesting. And um, Yeah, I'm just thinking of age in, in the octopus, how the males die soon after mating, and then the females die soon after the eggs hatch. And it seems, it just, it seems, it's so, I, I just, I wonder why that has to be. <laughs> and, the, and the females will, will guard them, they'll guard the eggs, and to the detriment of their own health, you know, with, and not feed themselves, just to see them through to hatching. And then, and then who's there to raise them? And teach them the octopus ways. I don't know if they, if I think the I think the mother sticks around and shows them feeding strategies, but I don't remember. But I do I do know that they that they do die soon after that. It's it's also curious to me that their level of intelligence they they're capable of using tools, and they have. I, I don't know if their lives are short. It's just, or it's just that the idea that they die 
after mating and then after the eggs are hatched, it reminds me of rats that they have also have such a short lifespan and they're so intelligent. They're really similar to dogs and their capability to learn and and be expressive to well, to humans and to each other. And yet they their lifespan is you know two to three years or longer in captivity. But it's also another really intelligent creature that that has such a, a brief lifespan. And thank you for that article. Wonderful. Yeah, I think the second one is better. I, I'm not sure if all of them do that, but the bigger ones, they do that. And uh, I think the longest that they were observed was um, taking care of their offspring for four years, so starving themselves for four years. Uh, that was the longest time, or even longer. I heard there's a really good NPR Radio Lab um, podcast about this. And, you know, they were basically saying all, um, listing all these world events that were happening while this octopus mom was still in the same spot taking care of the offspring so so for the bigger ones it takes years and um and the first phase is a mature non yeah so they um yeah, they do this for a very long time. They keep cleaning them, the the eggs, and um, and these researchers collected the optic lens from the octopus in different stages of these taking care of you know the offspring and sequence the RNA to find out uh, why they were doing this um, and. Before mating, they first produce high levels of neuropeptides, small protein-like molecules that have been linked to feeding behavior in many animals. So apparently before um, mating, they eat a lot. And then after mating, they showed a quick up, an uptick in the production of ketohylamines, steroids that regulate cholesterol metabolism and insulin-like factors. Um, so um, the first time the optic gland has been linked to function that doesn't have to do something with reproduction. So the findings suggest that the optic gland doesn't produce just a single hormone to regulate the reproduction, but uses multiple signaling pathways to keep the mother octopus watching over her precious eggs. Um, how these pathways occur is still a puzzle, whether the neurotransmitters that kick in after mating target reproductive tissue that promotes maternal instincts or shut down the digestive functions to keep her closer to her eggs is unknown. Um, yeah, and before um, you get the gist of what's going on, but now we're beginning to learn about the main characters, what their roles are, and a little bit more about the backstory. What is also unknown is why male octopus tend to die shortly after mating as well, even though um, they don't have the same parental obligation to care for the eggs. Uh, I would assume, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm honestly don't know. But I would assume they 
and each time they produce a lot of offspring and that kind of the cost that it's less efficient, I guess, to try several times to generate offspring than to just take very well care of, you know, a lot of offspring from that time. I guess it was like the evolutionary more thing, a sensible thing for them because, you know, they're really soft and they're really easy prey for anything, also for parasites um, while they're growing up. And um, so I would assume not many would make it, if even any, if they wouldn't be guarded that way, uh, even in later stages until they can really defend themselves. That's just, you know, what I would hypothesize. And the male, why he dies, that's really interesting. I would assume that if they each time produce so many... Um, offspring that you would have pretty quickly probably incest and that would probably be problematic uh, for the population and probably it's also better if he doesn't reproduce again um, but that's just another hypothesis I don't know does it make any sense <laughs> Yeah, I'm reading this article in Scientific American also. I, I found about this same situation. So these are the deep sea. These are the deep sea guys who have the long brood period. And that they said that they they offered this one mother that they had, the first one that they'd ever observed, they'd offered her some food and she refused it. So it's just slowing down of the metabolism and and how she's completely turned over her life to protecting these eggs and it's um, you know there's food there's scarcity of food in the deep sea so that could also explain um, you know the paternal death as well um, you know genetic variability as you're mentioning and then um, you know survival strategy to allow the little hatchlings to survive although now I wonder okay they grew they're 3.3 centimeters when they hatch so okay well this is wonderful thank you yeah go ahead go ahead Les sure so I would imagine they end up having more offspring than we do yes they do <laughs> they so should that's the whole point you know, I guess from when, if there was a point, that would be. So it works for them, for sure. And uh, the male doesn't really, you know, provide, you know, isn't really required after that either, because uh, they're not going to help the next generation much, if anything. Well, the curious thing is that would the male have another opportunity to mate? So in that case, he could, he could be helpful. But it's it's still such a, a curious situation. But I'm I think all of these ideas, all of these ideas, um, are worth examining and considering. Hey, Kirko, welcome. Nice to see you again.
Yo, I'm at work, so I can't do too much talking today. No problem. Come as you are. Are these found in, collected in Hawaii or other places? Well, this one that we discussed in particular was from Florida. Uh, but the one that the four year long month octopus yeah it's like it's off the california coast okay thank you yeah yeah so warmish waters i mean though that that water isn't considered to be warm water but it's not freezing either Yeah, so I think I posted the first one you shared with me that you wanted to share. Okay. Yeah. All right, let me get to it myself. Thank you. All right, here we go. So. There is a bill that has been signed to destigmatize special, the special education label of students and to secure dyslexia services. And that is in Topeka. Often we speak in here about the importance of language and accurate language, which can be challenging because sometimes we are used to using language that that isn't inclusive or language that is stereotizes groups of people in ways that are not helpful to accurately representing each of us and all of the the differences and um, you know wonderful things that make up who we are as humans and so i found this article to be a great representation of that of that spirit so I will begin. Social worker Leah Henderson worked three years to convince Kansas lawmakers to scrub from state law the special education label, which was emotional disturbance, that stigmatized children and often led to placement in more restrictive environments without suitable access to counseling services. And I, I also want to interrupt the article to say that even though this is happening in the U.S., it's, it's something happening in Kansas, this this shift, this evolution in awareness of the importance of language, it's something that affects all of us. It's, an, it's a great example of how people are addressing this, this idea, and it can be helpful in that way to anyone, no matter where we live. So, Governor Laura Kelly signed legislation changing terminology in statute to the more genetic term emotional disability, this same measure, House Bill 2322, added dyslexia to the list of disabilities covered by the state's special education law. Under the new statute, K-12 schools will be required to provide additional resources to students with a learning disorder, influencing ease with which a person reads, writes, and spells. Ensuring our special education students have the tools they need to thrive is one of my top priorities, Kelly said. That means recognizing all students, including students with dyslexia, who may need additional support and resources. Henderson, uh, who is an autism and behavior 
specialist for the Salina-based Central Kansas Cooperative in Education, drew years of experience serving families, striving to meet disability needs in children in home, school, and communities when she urged the Kansas legislature to get behind evolution and terminology so that individuals would be viewed as having an emotional disability rather than being emotionally disturbed. This distinction has real-world consequences, she says. Children who are identified as having an emotional disturbance are treated differently. Administrators in the field of education often more readily place children with the emotional disturbance label in more restrictive environments and compound that placement with failure to provide access to appropriate related services. She said the status quo went against the fabric of special education and sought to deliver precise instruction in the least restrictive environment possible. The burden of the label was so pervasive, she said, that parents weighed consequences of designating their child as emotionally disturbed and eligible for special education supports or enduring the child's low academic performance for fear of greater consequences of additional stigmatization, isolation, and discrimination. So this is something, I don't know, maybe somebody in the audience has experienced if you have a child and that you know you try to get them a diagnosis of ADHD for example or a teacher suggests that then then it's it's really something for the parent to have to consider because the child can receive accommodations which could be really helpful to them in addition to receiving funding that could help with treatment or or special supplies for for them but then there is that stigmatization that couldn't stick with them through life. It's these days, I would say from my experience, that that stigmatization with, with respect to something such as ADHD is less and that the benefits outweigh the risks of that. But for, for this situation, this terminology, it's, it's so important. So the article continues. Just imagine if you were a parent or grandparent of a child diagnosed with anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, or even an eating disorder, would you be comfortable consenting to the label of emotional disturbance? The Kansas House brought to the foreground the reform sought by Henderson, while the Kansas Senate amended the bill to include the designation of dyslexia as a covered disability. The House passed the bill 120 to 2. The state unanimously embraced the measure 40 to 0. State President Ty Masterson, a Republican from Andover, said he had struggled with dyslexia and lauded signing of the legislation as an important step to ensure our kids get the support they need. This legislation will ensure that all students with dyslexia receive services designated to grow their literacy and language skills, which is essential to support our our students and grow our economy. (laughs) Of course, they had to mention that part. Under House Bill 2322, the Special Education for Exceptional Children Act would revise the, the would rev, there's a typo, sorry, would revised, would revise the definition of children with disabilities to include dyslexia and replace the term emotional disturbance with emotional disability. 
Henderson said that the state's legislatures, legislators and governor allowed Kansas to join at least 23 states that legally have changed comparable terminology unfairly stigmatizing to children. Now, more than ever, our children need to be protected from the labels that hinder their access to appropriate education and make them targets solely on a diagnosis. It is my continued hope that parents will never have to choose between special education support for their child or a life-changing label. She also signed the House bill with eliminated. Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there because it's not pertinent to this, but it's so important. And this article I feel is is a really big hallelujah to to destigmatizing um, disabilities and also to recognizing the importance of accurate and inclusive language. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, really great news. Um, yeah, it's positive yeah, news. Yeah, it's really positive <laughs> news because another thing that's happening uh, in California, something that was going on with the teachers' strike, was that the union was pro, was against. So there's part of um, what was in question is including what they were talking about was, um, let's bring Dr. Heidi up, welcome Dr. Heidi, was um, dyslexia screening for all students. And teachers are supportive of that idea. Welcome Dr. Heidi. And the union, teachers union in California is against it. Um, for reasons that many of the teachers were saying were not based on science and something that I'm aware of is that people were saying it just adds one more thing that teachers need to be trained for, which I, I can understand. However, this um, growing up with dyslexia and not being able to read and the, the damage that that can cause a child is huge. And, and you can imagine... Um, you know, not being able to read how well people, ch uh, children try to hide that and how much that leaves children out of, you know, of their, of their learning. And in addition, there's also just some more background, the role of implicit bias where dyslexia diagnosis is concerned is also something to be considered and it's it's also another reason why I feel that it's it's so important to to um, to include testing for for dyslexia in in kids as early as possible um, there's just a little data um, that that I'm I have found um, that according to the nation's report card, this was in 2019, uh, an alarming 82% of black fourth graders were not reading at proficient levels compared to 66% of all fourth graders. And it was determined that much of this could be a discrepancy in discriminatory um, testing and awareness of what kind of challenges students were facing. And this this article um, mentions that many schools take what they call a wait-to-fail approach that blames students and families for academic difficulties and explains that families of black children with dyslexia also add that 
the layer of language rooted in historic and systemic racism, the language of low expectations, misinterpretation, and development developmentally appropriate behaviors, the lack of recognizing that, in addition with the exclusion of families as partners in, a, in educational decisions, are also factors that can, that can affect the reading levels. So it's, it's so important for people who are, who are with, who are working with our youth are able to recognize their challenges or at the very least be able to say, I notice that this student is struggling here and then perhaps turn that student over to the care and, and, and diagnosis of some, somebody who's able to bring the help that that and accommodation that student needs. So I can't stress enough how, how important that is and, and how wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, please go ahead, Les. And Dr. Heidi, if you wanted to say something, please um, unmute too. So I think the last three years have been very hard on special ed children because uh, the remote, uh, I, you know, they, they've kind of really fallen behind because they really do need the in person education. Uh, also, um, I wonder if, if for people, for, uh, for children that, that aren't dyslexic, if uh, Sesame Street helped, you know, because, uh, you know, when I went to school, uh, we went to, we, we uh, learned the alphabet, supposedly we learned the alphabet when we went to kindergarten. And my mom was a, was a reading teacher, so I was not in that position. But nowadays, uh, you know, they start teaching them how to read in, in kindergarten. And, uh, you know, Sesame Street is something that's, uh, accessible to pretty much every to everybody so i think that's a good i'm just wondering uh, if that helped thank you les well sesame street did a lot of wonderful things like um harry belafonte was on sesame street and buffy saint marie was on sesame street and sesame street continues to to um try to provide a a, a representative, a slice of life that's representative to people that that we might meet, and and so um, I I I've always loved them for that reason, and also what you bring up, you know, with respect to how they teach uh, the idea of phonics, um, or also known as sounding out letters, is something that I did as I learned as a child. Maybe you did too, and I loved it. However, it does not work for all children, and I think that's part of the challenge is that really if we had smaller classrooms, then a lot of, of um, situations that a lot of different learning styles would be able to be addressed. But when you're one teacher with 28 kids and you're, and you're trying to share the same lesson plan with them all, not everybody, it's not going to work for everybody. 
And as far as, um, I have an example of phonics when um, my kids, we were in a situation where mm, it was like a public class for Somebody was trying to teach the kids how to read. And, and they were, or actually somebody was, we were in a group setting and somebody was trying to share the idea of sounding out letters and what all the letters sounded like. And so the woman was saying like, da-da-da-dog, you know, j-j-j-giraffe, you know, which could be gut or just, so that's confusing right there. And, um, and on and on. And then went around the room and gave each child a chance to share, um, you know, the letter sound. And when it got to my daughter, she said, um, g-g-g fireplace, you know, and she was really proud of herself. Um, you know, she didn't, she didn't understand what that was. And I think that's part of something that I've seen in education is that we know how to read and we know what it means to say the sound of a letter and associate that with the written letter. But there's so many steps. That's, that's, that's actually an abstract concept, you know, that a letter has a sound. And so people make that, expect all children to make that same leap. And there's, there's a, um, a school system in the UK called the Sudbury system where they believe in child-led reading and their average age for kids learning how to read is age eight. And once kids learn how to read on their own, you know, they're off reading. And I did this as well. And so that's why I, I didn't have any problem, Katarina, with your example of, you know, one person saw the octopus dreaming and then they extrapolated and, you know, made conjecture about that because everybody's observations, you know, they're relevant. It's what we you know, what kind of conclusions we draw. But with my children, I did let them learn to read by themselves. They both learned how to read at age eight. And then two weeks later, we're reading chapter books. Um, it, every child is different. Every child learns differently. And so, again, I feel that um, we could cut through a lot of of spending and even testing if classrooms were really small, you know, like one teacher, it would even be great to have one teacher and five students or, you know, just the student teacher ratio would be that, that you could have several adults in one class to a classroom of kids if people were really interested in having groups of children learn together, not to mention various age groups too. I think that's better, but, but anyway, um, yeah, thank you, Les. That's the, my thought in response to you bringing up Sesame Street, which I think is is an interesting um, an interesting way to learn about reading. I'm sorry, I have to I have to say something. Yeah, I'm important. done. <laughs> so we had um, we had guest speaker uh, the the a scientist that did a lot of studies, and I also put the put the paper there um about reading and um and he is um he's from norway uh and he actually is making um school programs new ones for elementary school and then now moving on to also doing middle school and higher school systems and he presented here so i shared the room uh, where we had this conversation and talked about this very large-scale research and um, the success, but that kids just can go off reading by themselves uh, is actually the problem. I mean, it might have worked for a few kids, but 
to do this on a large scale in a school setting um, where maybe the kids at home don't, don't have a lot of books and so on, that doesn't work and that has been proven and it's very important that we move away from that. And there, there are various um, reports on that and this woman got really, it's an Australian woman, she did at some point this research on a very small scale with just a few kids and actually who pushed her a lot was the Clinton family. They gave her a lot of money. She printed millions and millions of books around the world with her system. And that created that a lot of kids nowadays around the world cannot read um, because her idea is just put, just make a comfortable reading corner and let kids uh, learn how to read by themselves. This doesn't work for most kids and has been proven over and over and we need to really move away from that. And yeah, hit, uh, please read about his model. It's really interesting. So this is kind of a, he made a whole school model so kids are more motivated to learn also in general. It's, he focuses on reading, but not just reading, also learning other things. So it's very important to teach like step-by-step step how to read with sounding out things and so on and then on top he has a very interesting program that uh, kids have to feel like motivated and they have some sort of um, self like decision making for motivation so by the end of the day they have like they have a lot of resets and moving a lot but then at the end of the day they have um uh what's the name uh a passion hour where they can choose anything they would like to learn about or do that is their passion and discover their passion and this kind of really motivated even boys that are you know doing very badly in most schools nowadays to uh, stay motivated throughout the day to be allowed to have this passion hour it's really wonderful work that he does. So yeah, if you're interested, listen to the replay and then also his research and his school model. It's really amazing what he has been achieving. But I'm sorry, but I had to intervene because this is a very, you know, this model from this back in the 70s Australian model is, is very flawed and still, still, you know, contributes to a lot of... Uh, kids not learning how to read, including in Germany, actually. Oh, I appreciate, I appreciate you clarifying because to say on their own is not what I, the, um, no. And they're at their own pace is different from on their own. So I don't, I would not, I'm not going to tell another parent what to do in that situation, but certainly I've never seen, um, no, at their own pace is extremely different. And at their own pace looks like, lots of lots of togetherness and lots of people uh, you know doing whatever whatever it is that people want to do to help teach their child to read but the idea is that the child takes the lead and the parent is completely on it so in my experience parents were ready to go they had books to you know to teach phonics or whatever the you know whatever the system was there there were many that you know, whatever people feel felt worked for them. Pe people were ready from babyhood. And so it isn't, yeah, I'm, I appreciate, Katarina, that you are um, 
that you're defining that I that wasn't to sound like on your own go do whatever you want and nobody's going to be there to help you. No, it's 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 very different. It's it's a really um, you know parent to child or adult to child um, intensive situation and and very different. So I don't know of that study, but I. I, um, the one that you'd mentioned from Australia, I just know, you know, of my experience and, and reading of Sudbury and other parents who had followed that, you know, and, and for us it was, it was all ages, you know, some kids are at four years old reading and, and others, as I said, like mine, they started and they, you know, they didn't want to do other things, um, they, and then they, they wanted to read one day and they did. So, yeah, I appreciate your, your clarity on that and welcome everybody else to share as well. The uh, problem of not having books in the house, uh, Dolly Parton's uh, charity has given out 100 million books and uh, a very successful effort. Yeah, it's great, Les. We actually did that too when my kids were little. We were receiving those books. That's such a fantastic, really a fantastic resource. And that was so charitable of her. Yeah, do we want to go into the fossils? Um, yeah, great. Okay, so this one, a different twist. Fossil of Mosasaur with bizarre screwdriver teeth found in Morocco. Scientists have discovered a new species of Mosasaur, a sea-dwelling lizard from the age of dinosaurs with strange ridged teeth, unlike those of any known reptile. Along with other recent finds from the continent of Africa, it suggests that mosasaurs and other marine reptiles were evolving rapidly up until 66 million years ago when they were wiped out by an asteroid along with the dinosaurs and around 90% of all species on Earth. The new species, Stelladens mysteriosus, comes from the late Cretaceous of Morocco and was around twice the size of a dolphin. It had a unique tooth arrangement with blade-like ridges running down the teeth arranged in a star-like star-shaped pattern reminiscent of a crosshead screwdriver. Most mosasaurs had two blade-like serrated ridges on the front and back of the tooth to help cut prey. However, Stelladens had anywhere from four to six of these blades running down the tooth. It's a surprise, said Dr. Nick Longrich from the Milner Center for Evolution at the University of Bath, who led the study. It's not like any mosasaur or any reptile, even any vertebrate we've seen before. Dr. Natalie Bardet, um, a marine special, excuse me, a marine reptile specialist from the Museum of Natural History in Paris said, I've worked on the Mosasaurs of Morocco for more than 20 years and I've never seen anything like this before. I was both perplexed and amazed. That several teeth were found with the same shape suggests that their strange shape was not the result of a pathology or a mutation. The unique teeth suggest a specialized feeding strategy or a specialized diet, but it remains unclear what Stelladens ate. Dr. Longrich said, we have no idea what this animal was eating because we don't know of anything similar either alive today or from the fossil record. It's possible it found a unique way to feed or maybe it was filling an ecological niche that wasn't 
that simply doesn't exist today. The teeth look like the tip of a Phillips head screwdriver or maybe a hex wrench. So what is it eating? Phillips head screws? Ikea furniture? Who knows? <laughs> That's my favorite part of the article. The teeth were small but stout with wear on the tips, which seemed to rule out soft-bodied prey. The teeth weren't strong enough to crush heavily armored animals like clams or sea urchins, however. That, that might suggest, seem to suggest that it's eating something small and lightly armored thin-shelled ammonites, crustaceans, or bony fish, but it's hard to know, said Longridge. These were weird animals living in the Cretaceous, ammonites, balamnites, baculites that no longer exist. And those creatures are really strange. They're, they're kind of, they have somewhat decorated shells, like trilobites and things. That simply doesn't exist anymore, and it might explain why nothing like this is ever seen again. Evolution isn't always predictable, and sometimes it goes off in a unique direction, and something evolves that's never been seen before and never evolves again. The Mosasaurs had lived alongside dinosaurs, but weren't dinosaurs. Instead, they were giant lizards, relatives of the Komodo dragons, snakes, and iguanas, adapted for a life at sea. Mosasaurs evolved around 100 million years ago and diversified up to 66 million years ago, when, giant, when a giant asteroid hit the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, plunging the world into darkness. Although scientists have debated the role of environmental changes toward the end of the Cretaceous and the extinction, Stelodens, along with recent discoveries from Morocco, suggests that Mosasaurs were evolving rapidly up to the very end. They went out at their peak rather than fading away. The new study suggests that even after years of work in the Cretaceous and Morocco, new species are continuing to be discovered. The reason may be that most species are rare. The authors of the study predict that in a very diverse ecosystem, it may take decades to find all of the rare species. We're not even close to finding everything in these beds, says Longrich. This is the third new species to appear just this year. The amount of diversity at the end of the Cretaceous is just staggering. Noor Edin Yalil, a professor at the Natural History Museum and researcher at the Univers Kadi Ayad in Morocco, said, The fauna has produced an incredible number of surprises. Mosasaurs with teeth arranged like a saw, a turtle with a snout in the form of a snorkel, a multitude of vertebrates of various shapes and sizes, and now a mosasaur with star-shaped teeth. We would say the works of an artist with an overflowing imagination. Morocco's sites offer an unparalleled picture of the amazing biodiversity just before the great crisis at the end of the Cretaceous. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's always exciting when they find like this weird structures and uh, yeah, new types of anatomy that we haven't thought and get puzzled about it's really exciting so yeah that was wonderful thank you and that eat ikea furniture that was hilarious well i appreciate the part that mentions that there you know it's the tip of the iceberg that they're only just discovering things. And then since everything, well, 90% of, you know, living things were wiped out with the asteroid, um, you know, we depend on these fossil records for evidence that these creatures existed at all. So that makes it really even more precious.
that they're finding these things and can share them with us. Yeah, um, and also, I mean, the it's it has also been interesting what we find when um, you know when there are construction sites sites and so on, but also there have been recent um, findings due to you know very sad climate change drying out of lakes and so on um, that are really interesting. So. Um, yeah, but this one <laughs> with that um, weird shaped teeth is, um, it's very interesting how they specialize like that and how we didn't find teeth like this before. And maybe now that we find, found them on that side, now we will find, <laughs> you know, how it goes, all that we find out that all over the place they had teeth like this and we are the weird ones. <laughs> now, um, I don't know. <laughs> Good point. We must assume nothing. Yeah, I wanted to share. Uh, we've almost an hour, but I think we kind of um, going a little bit longer. I wanted to share this really great news um, about a paralyzed man that uh, walks again using um, this device. Uh, it was in the Guardian um, and um, pioneering because we talked about brain machine interfaces um, recently, and uh, I thought this was really wonderful news. And, uh, pioneering research could help development of miniaturized devices for stroke patients and paralyzed people. A man who was paralyzed in a cycling accident in 2011. Has been able to stand and walk again with an aid after doctors implanted a device that reads his brain waves and sends instructions to his spine to move the right muscles. He's 40, um, the patient is 40, he was told he would never walk again uh, after breaking his neck in a traffic accident in China, but does climb chairs and walked for more than a hundred meters at a time since having this operation. A few months ago, I was able for the first time after 10 years to stand up and have a beer with my friend, said Oscar, who is from the Netherlands. That was pretty cool. I want to use it in my daily life. The Digital Bridge is the latest from a team from neuroscientists in Switzerland who have a long-standing program to develop brain-machine interfaces to overcome paralysis. And this <clears throat> project aims to use wireless signals to reconnect the brain with muscles that are rendered useless when spinal cord nerves are broken. In a previous trial, OSCOM tested a system that recreated the rhythmic steps of walking by sending signals from a computer to a spinal cord, while the device helped him take several steps at once. Uh, the movement was quite robotic and had to be triggered by a button or sensor. For the latest update, uh, the neurosurgeon at Lausanne University installed the electrodes in, um, os on Oscam's brain that detect the neural activity when he tries to move his legs. And the reading is then processed by an algorithm that turns them into pulses, which are sent to further electrodes in his spine. The pulses then activate nerves in the spine, switching on muscles to produce 
the intended movement. <clears throat> what we've been able to do is to reestablish communication between the brain and the region of the spinal cord that controls leg movement with a digital bridge. Um, he said the system could capture the thoughts of Gurdjian and translate those thoughts into stimulation of the spinal cord to re-establish voluntary leg movement. The device does not produce swift, smooth strides, but Oscar said the implant described and published in the journal Nature followed for more natural movements than before because standing up and walking were initiated and controlled by thinking about the actions and not by pressing a button. Uh, then signals stimulate muscles needed to flex the hip, knee and ankle. The device also appears to boost rehabilitation. After more than 40 training sessions with the implant, Oscar, who did not sever all the nerves in the spine, to regain some control over his legs, even when the device was turned off. Curtin believes that reconnecting the brain and spine helps to reg regenerate spinal nerves, recovering some of the patient's lost control. While the work is still at an early stage, the researchers hope that future miniaturized devices will help stroke patients and paralyzed people to walk, move their arms and hands and control other functions such as the bladder, which often is affected by spinal cord injuries. Arm and hand movements may be more difficult as they are more complex than walking. The other thing, yeah, so I thought this was really interesting and also based on Michael Nicolili's exoskeleton work, um, the surprising thing that they found here, they also saw that, um, you know, the patients over, over time regained some function, uh, you know, of their um, limbs. But also, what was important, uh, homeostasis of the body, like this type of function, was also um, slightly better again because when you have the severe uh, spinal cord injuries, um, especially in the neck, uh, your body is not able to regulate well temperature anymore, inflammation, so people get fevers out of you know, the tiniest things, they get infections um, really easily. Um, so it's not just that you cannot move, it's also you're sick all the time, like your digestive system isn't working as well, and so on. So, and in those exoskeleton studies, um, this was kind of getting better too over time it took like over a year so yeah it will be interesting to follow uh, this patient as it seemed to be pretty quick that he regained some function over his own limbs so um, yeah it would be interesting to see if that's also true for him then life expectancy would also increase for him This is amazing. Thing. Go ahead, Les. Go ahead. Amazing thing to me too is is how much the immune system depends on uh, connections to the brain. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of a loop. Uh, I wrote a whole like review about this at some point. Uh, it's a while ago, and I wrote way too much. <laughs> it's not very well, and like. 
the res the the review part is okay. I could have, you know, cut out maybe some things, but yeah, there's a lot of evidence from research from decades that um the immune system and the neurosystem need to work together and if one is um damaged basically it kind of turns into a vicious circle and if you fix one the other one should also get fixed and you know not like in the last years we saw that if inflammation um chronic inflammation is going on you have patients with depression then um so yeah there's there's a lot of connection there were study shown in, in mice that, for example, a faulty immune system directly um, connects with neurons in the brain that are responsible for social interaction and that the mice then had social anxiety and stayed away from other mice if their immune system was not working and not coping with the inflammation. So they directly showed it in in these neurons and how it affects the brain so yeah there's a lot of studies like that nowadays so um yeah it's it's fascinating that what you just mentioned also um refers back to howard bloom's work again because he was he was then talking about how then when when members of the population are experiencing depression then they become self-destructive. So that's that's an incredible cycle. And it would be, um, I, I would say there's no way you spoke or wrote too much on that. Um, we could, we could, we could use hearing as much about that information as possible. I don't think it's in common knowledge. Yeah, it's interesting. There were a few, like there was a group that decades ago already did um, some small studies on um, stimulating the vagus nerve um, and then see how the immune system react and you know now we had we even had a guest speaker that showed uh, that cancer changes pain sensitivity and also more pain sensitivity kind of um, makes cancer more severe and more likely for ther uh, treatments to not work. I don't know if um, anyone was here, but it's in our replay list. Um, and then we had another article we discussed about, you know, links. Oh, right, that the cancer cell uh, took over the used the neurons to basically grow faster it's like they hijacked the neural system to grow faster and this could lead you know to treatments to disrupt that um, and then uh, what it did was that then also the neurons downregulated immune response to the cancer um, so yeah, there, there is a lot of connection going on uh, between immune system, neural system, and then how the body responds to cancer and, and inflammation and so on. So 
Yeah, yeah, I wrote a lot of different theories what, you know, what would be interesting to see, like, um, to test, for example, um, throughout life, if, you know, your body tends to, um, to have this, this overreaction of the immune system and neurosystem to like pain to uh, too small inflammation like a cold and if that would be the case that you maybe um, once in a while would would want to disrupt that because over time this constant inflammation states are really damaging also for the neural system and my hypothesis was that then your likelihood of developing and at, during aging like Alzheimer's and Parkinson and so on would um, tend to be higher. But interestingly, a lot of those hypotheses that I did years ago are, you know, there are no studies pointing towards that. So anyway, <laughs> you know, I've... Um, yeah, but yeah, it's a very interesting new field, basically. Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's just, it's so many things. The ability to move one's own muscles, I'm thinking basic level, like peristalsis is affected, right? But then also, and releases of endorphins, and then um, release of nitric acid, and which, you know, then is affecting all the smooth muscles and and affecting cardiac health in a positive way. So this this device is is um, I mean we're meant to move. What a what a great thing! And then maybe even in conjunction for some people with the exoskeleton, imagine what could happen. Thanks for this article. Yeah, it. Do you know that it reflects in how we use the language? That I think was so interesting. There was a paper. When I did all the, um, when I started developing all this language analysis tools, um, um, I I read a few really old papers like from the nineties, and then well, they that's started... really old. Sorry to interrupt. Well, yeah, <laughs> no, for, I know, no, it is for science it... because they had really you know very low computing capacity, so the studies only went so far right so um, they couldn't do this large-scale analysis you can do fairly easily with you know and using machine learning and stuff what we do now but it was really interesting that a lot of these things that go on in your body you will automatically uh, change your language use so um, people with Parkinson uh, that have like even early onset of Parkinson when they describe, when you give them a picture where a lot of movement is going on, they tend to still use way less movement words to describe the picture than healthy people, where people that are depressed or have PTSD and this dissociation, they use way less uh, pronouns reflecting that like we they never use we and so on so it's really interesting how it immediately reflects in our language use with us without us noticing unless you and you can utilize that and so they this researcher that did this 
you know, in the 90s, he then told students had depression and PTSD to to write a journal and um, and change that, like to be aware of it and change it. And it it worked pretty well. So yeah, we can we can detect that and also then use that uh, knowledge to kind of train to create this biofeedback in a positive way. And it's such a simple thing to just be conscious uh, or you know test the word the type of words you use and how often so yeah it's interesting right it's it sounds like you're speaking about how um since it's reflected in language use your example of the patients with people with parkinson's how that reflects the use of language then you can maybe um, make conjecture that that's also affecting a person's self-image and and limiting you know lim like things like limiting beliefs limiting what a person might um, attempt once with even with early onset Parkinson's and how that might influence the progression of the disease yeah so for example the um... Also, people with depression and PTSD use less movement words, at least that what, you know, my research results um, showed. So um, you could, you know, training. And then if you look at people that were really resilient, like they had the very severe, so we analyzed like um, people's language from the Boston Marathon bombing and, you know, from 9-11 um, uh, survivors and, you know, also people that um, are first responders and other catastrophes like after severe hurricanes and so on. And people that bounce and uh, Holocaust survivors, uh, we had a lot of Holocaust survivor data sets that bounced back like that managed not like they are completely healthy but who is right but had kids at the job you know managed to have a regular life um their language use really reflect that like they when they talk about this traumatic situations they always see themselves and describe themselves in a group uh, which is very different from people that don't bounce back. They see them, they just say I all the time and they don't use a lot of movement words and so on. So this specific training, and then, you know, I talked about this the other day here, um, that, for example, firefighters have way higher percentage of PTSD versus soldiers. I don't know, people are not aware of that, but in firefighters, PTSD is way more prevalent. And soldiers go through this specific training and we figured that this was a very important factor that they don't see themselves as a separate entity, but in a group. They are not ever allowed during the training to say I. They always say we. And they are supposed to and we think that by doing that, they kind of get this 
you know, relative protection of PTSD. But then what's also very important is not the severity of the trauma, but how you feel after the trauma. If you feel like you're in a group and you feel you have purpose, any purpose, then you're very unlikely to develop PTSD. But if you're kind of lonely and feel like nobody's there for you, then, you know, it's more likely. So that is a very important factor, this community purpose and doing things, like staying active is kind of very important. Welcome, welcome, Kyle. It's great to see you. And Katarina, just briefly, um, yeah, again, anecdotally, you, what you're saying, I can think of, of examples in my life. I'm, I'm thinking of a friend that I had who came back from her military service and she said what was terrifying for her was that she felt when she was in the military that no matter where she was, she felt like somebody had her back, more than one somebody, and that she remembered standing in the market and feeling um, kind of panicky because she felt like she was alone. And she said she looked at people and thought, we're all, we're all just completely separate here. And then I think of a cousin of mine who was a Holocaust survivor, and he was one of the happiest people that I've ever met. And I, and I wondered how, you know, how, how is that? How did you manage to survive? And, and how did you manage to keep your, um, you know, your mood and, and healthy? And, and he also used language that you described, he used um, positive group-oriented language that, that also reflected hope and possibility. It's, it's um, yeah, these things are so, um, so accurate and so typical of, of us, you know, how we are as humans. Thank you for sharing all that. And how amazing it is that the scientific community is finally waking up to this age-old ancient practice. Um, a lot of people who have spent a great deal of time meditating have, um, once they have developed an ability to view the mind and the body, um, they then realize the importance of language. And this is something that I've been um, kind of looking at since I think it was the 2014 World Cup. Um, the first kick was um, from a, a young lad who, um, who had a prosthetic limb that he controlled with his mind. Um, and that's almost 10 years ago, um, nine years ago, more um, accurately. And so, yes, I just had to raise my hand and say thank you for bringing up this article here. Um, I just shared it. I haven't read it yet. Um, I will look into it, but uh, absolutely with embodied cognition, um, in activism, um, language is incredibly important uh, to a person's well-being. A lot of people are also limited by the words that they know and the syntax that they use to string them together. Um, and if they just, you know, had a better literacy rate um, and knew more words and strung them together in a better way, they, um, based upon what was said just now, would probably have a better experience of life. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And um, 
You know why I did the study with the language and the resilience? I mean, I was doing studies for PTSD and depression and uh, impulsivity, like addiction before. But the resilience was completely out of annoyance because I felt like uh, trauma victims were were stigmatized again and like uh, victims again a second time after the trauma and that basically the people or whatever caused this trauma they won like twice because all the studies that were out there and almost everyone I talked with at NYU the professor she was one of the leading you know, a traumatic experience, especially during childhood uh, event scientists. And everyone said, basically, oh, the people are screwed for life and even the next generations with epigenetics, you know. And this was very much and still is, sadly, in the mindset of people, especially in Holocaust survivors, that you know, if you talk with families, they say, yeah, yeah, we are all screwed because this happened to my grandmother. So, uh, you know, our epigen. And it's because of these studies that were done. And then nobody followed up with these studies. For example, uh, there was the cortisol study that showed actually that in families of Holocaust survivors, of these families that survived, um, that cortisol levels, even in stress situations, are actually lower. So what did they, um, you know, what did the scientists uh, make out of that? Oh, it doesn't matter. You're screwed if your cortisol levels are lower or higher. It's also a sign of, you know, extended trauma throughout generations. But how about resilience? I mean, millions of people died experiencing that. And those few people made it. And on top, they didn't just survive the unthinkable. They managed after that to thrive. I mean, can't you give some kind of... like? Um, and also others, you know, there were incredible stories of all kind of horrific events that people then afterwards thrive and can't you give them some credit of resilience you don't go ahead and say okay you survived you're doing okay but your whole family for generations will be screwed anyways no matter how well you're doing right now what the heck is that so <laughs> that's why i started doing this study and everyone was saying you're crazy, why are you doing this? They're all screwed, like these type of people that survive this. I mean, it's being a victim twice and three times and four times. I mean, depending on how long it stays in the family, that, that kind of thinking. So anyways, that was just, <laughs> sorry for this rant, but yeah. It was a beautiful rant, and um, I just wanted to say for the, I guess there's an Eastern and Western mindset, I don't think in that duality, but this is also in relation to prayer. Um, people pray, pray in language, so that's also something to consider.
everything matters. I, I was thinking about that as well, that, that those studies, if they're not taking into consideration the cultural norms of the people that they're, that they're examining and what, what the families have to offer or, or what their traditions have to offer them in terms of um, you know, finding resilience, then it's a flawed study. So yeah, thank you, Katarina, for bringing this up. And welcome, Kyle. It's nice to see you. And welcome back, Dr. Heidi. Both Kyles. Thank you, thank you. I, I, a few times I've been in a room with this same Kyle, so it's nice. It's always nice for a Kyle. You know, there's going to be a gathering of Kyles in Texas in about a month. I, I just saw an article my mom sent me. So, Kyle, if you go to Texas, you're going to meet all the... It's the city of Kyle. They want to have the largest <laughs> gathering of the same name on record. I will not be attending because I have about $25. But, well, hello and hello and thank you. Sure. And I'm sorry I interrupted you, Katarina, when you were saying um, studies from the 90s, but there is there is a meme that's going around that says, a friend of mine mentioned something that had happened in 1992, and I was thinking, yeah, that was about 30 years ago, and then I did the math, and, and I laid down and took a nap. So <laughs> it's one of those um, strange phenomenon. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Oh, go ahead, Heidi. No, yeah, I want I to say something. No, no, I was about to say, you know, I speak four languages fluently, but um, one lovely comment, and it reminded me actually of uh, what you've been commenting, that people um, not looking at the emotional intelligence behind things and words and how they can affect the lives of the other people. And I loved when Victoria said that people brought up in different conditions, different environment, and you don't know what they've been through. So uh, being calm and kind, it's part of um, great humbleness of the scientists. So one of uh, the people, he sent me a message to correct my English. I remember, um, I recall that I said, I gave you a big applause. And they said, you told them, you applaud them. And it should be, you applaud them. I didn't answer back, but I actually admire that people didn't think about the news and what's happening and the deep science we're talking about and the research and reflecting on our research and what's happening in academic arena and they try to find the mistakes and they try to find um, the faults and I, I don't blame them because this is a normal behavior of the mind and someone working on neuroscience you know I'm talking about Katerina so um, uh, I actually um, admire the, the power of biohacking and the, the consciousness you bring to all of us, which is being aware of what's happening around us. And um, I found that you gave me a great shield even with speaking with confidence and don't care about those messages. Don't care about the distractions coming to you. You're confident about your content. You're confident about what you're delivering. You're confident about your research. So I applaud you 
and a big applause for both of you for the great stuff you actually offering us all the time. And excuse my second language. This is Heidi and I'm complete. Oh, thank you so much, Heidi. That's so nice of you and that's very kind of you. Um, yeah, I really appreciate your kind words. And uh, yeah, it's always wonderful having you here. And um, yeah, thank you. And, and the other important thing, Katarina, I need your help in something. I get promoted to be the strategic director for uh, People with Disabilities Australia in uh, one of the biggest boards here, People with Disabilities Australia. And I'm into biohacking and limitless and gym quick work and what you're talking about. So lots of news like this one, the one you shared with us, which is giving people hope and power and that they can rechange their dynamics of the brain and the brain chemicals and biohacking. I would be really interested even to do um, academic research with you in this area to give people hope and power. And thank you again. Oh, yeah, 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 reach out to me. Uh, we can, yeah, and and we'll talk about it for sure. That would be great, it would be wonderful. Yeah, and thank you for considering me. Thank you. Well, um, Toby, how are you? Did you want to add something, comments, share something? Yeah, if I may, I'm, can I do a sound check? I have a headset on. I'm doing a walk. You know, like, can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit windy. What you can yes. do? Oh, okay. Yeah, it is windy um, in LA. So, yeah, <clears throat> what great conversation because being a um, son of a mom who immigrated from uh, Leipzig, Germany during the war and then growing up with her until I was eight and you know, remembering her being around other um, survivors. Uh, now my mom wasn't Jewish, um, but um, they, uh, they fled. So I didn't, have a, I didn't have a father that I knew of. And then uh, she died. So I went into the system of foster care and all of that. And you know, I won't get into that too much. There was a lot of uh, abuse there and then pulling through that and then you know going to college and then going into the fire department and being a firefighter medic at a very busy department and of course experiencing all that trauma and not really um you know getting the proper care for the childhood trauma but i when when you guys speak of all these things um i can just remember things that I went through to help me get through it and now to where I'm at now at age 63 and still developing and evolving, staying busy, learning musical instruments, now getting into um, um, technology classes. Um, it's really key to stay active, increase your vocabulary, increase your mind and challenge it and keep learning. And through those years of staying that way, I've developed where the post-traumatic stress disorders are not, you know, not as severe or as debilitating as I get older. And then if I go back to reunions of other men that I served with and women, they're kind of stuck in there and they, you know, they still don't 
you know, they, they haven't exercised themselves to move forward. I don't, I don't, um, so I'm, I'm kind of rambling, but I'm walking through these hills. So, um, but anyway, great conversation. It just reaffirms what I'm doing and to keep doing what I'm doing. And I, I appreciate, um, you know, everybody's contribution. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your perspective. Thank you, Toby. I wish you well on your journey. Yeah, thanks. It's great to hear your voice again. Oh, thanks, everybody. Um, just, I try to get this get to the rooms as much as I possibly can. But you know, um, uh, during the pandemic, we all had all that time. But so now I'm, you know, in the constructs of you know movement in society. So it's it's kind of hard to catch everybody. But I, I, I try to. And also, that was beautiful music in the background, Dr. Heidi. Everybody should have such music. <laughs> It's in the great uh, train station in Incheon, South Korea. Um, I, I'm actually, I feel that I'm in heaven here. It's really organized, the city. The one I uh, mentioned to you before, it's a green city, Incheon. So um, I'm using the luxury of the public places now. Thank you. <laughs> you know, um, there is something that Toby mentioned that I will bring up uh, just because I don't really get this opportunity very much uh, in the Science Society room, but um, this is kind of like what it's, what, you know, he, he mentioned like integrating back into uh, the constructs of society and being um, an effective person. Um, so this is something that, um, you know, even uh, just many ancient people, um, you think of uh, Jesus, Buddha, whatever, um, they went and removed themselves um, for a reason, and then they integrated back in. And so this is something um, that uh, language would have had something to do with it. Um, they would have spent a lot of time um, in contemplation, prayer, meditation, um, and changing the way uh, in which they think um, in language, and then integrate back into society. So I just... I wanted to bring that up because it was uh, something Toby said and it was very spot on. Yeah, meditation is um, very important to me. Uh, walking meditation, sitting meditation, um, you know, meditation in action, um, so to speak, where you <clears throat> create safe space of just kind of releasing the mind and you know, auto, auto, autonomy through the action that you're doing, like what I'm doing is walking now. And then imagination, uh, putting your imagination forward, uh, either um, remembering things that you've done or putting your imagination in, into something that you want to create next. Now, I'm an artist as well, so I'm thinking of, you know, paintings, poetry, notating things that are going through my mind that I want to put into poetry or put into my next painting. Uh, which that increases your language as well, especially with AI now. Oh my goodness, what therapy that is for your brain if you just put ideas in and then outline your ideas and then pump them into AI and you can just take your mind fast forward it into whatever direction you want and learning new words, new vocabulary, learning how to phrase things, how to, how to communicate. It's we're living in a really dynamic time in life with tools that 
can accelerate things and social media. I read a studies where social media actually is a wonderful tool that engages people in their community. It engages them in thought, it engages them in what's going on in the world. Of course, you know, anything can be a bad tool if you're not using it properly. So it, it is, yeah, kind of rambling, I'm sorry. Well, I want to welcome Alder to the stage. It's great to see you. It's been a while. Glad to have you here. Hello, hello. Uh, I'm reading this article. It seems very interesting. I'm sure I'll, well, maybe I won't think of anything intelligent to say because it seems like there's some smart folks in the room. But if I, if I come up with something while I'm reading the article, I'll definitely hop in. All right. And Katarina, why don't you share it with us? Well, thank Please. you for that segue. <laughs> we haven't read it yet, so you're perfect timing. So, yeah, I wanted to uh, basically move to kind of positive um, articles uh, that science kind of leads the way also for, uh, yeah, positive developments sometimes. So, um I think this will be maybe really useful um, because it's relatively easy to even m make at home a device that can produce like 40 hertz of vibration. So um, yeah, let's read it. Um, the tactile stimulation improved motor performance, reduced phosphorylated tau, preserved neurons, and synapses and reduce DNA damage, a new study shows. I thought this was really impressive. It's on uh, different levels, um, in, yeah, improving um, the neurons. So MIT researchers have found that sensory stimulation of 40 hertz gamma frequency brain rhythms using tactile stimulation can mitigate Alzheimer's disease pathology and symptoms. The study, which builds on earlier work involving light and sound, showed that daily exposure of 40, 40 hertz vibrations improved brain health and motor function in mice and reduced key markers of Alzheimer's disease. The research analyzed the potential for gamma frequency stimulation as a novel therapeutic approach to Alzheimer's disease. Evidence that non-invasive sensory stimulation of 40 hertz gamma frequency brain rhythms can reduce Alzheimer's disease, pathology, and symptoms. Um, this was already shown with light and sound by multiple research groups in mice and humans. Now it extends also to tactile stimulation. Um, uh, yeah, and as I said, the MIT group is not the first to show that gamma frequency tactile stimulation can affect brain activity and improve motor function, but they are the first to show that the stimulation can also reduce levels of the hallmark Alzheimer's protein phosphorylated tau, uh, keep neurons from dying or losing their synapse circuit uh, connections, and reduce neural DNA damage. This work demonstrates that a third sensory modality that we can use to increase gamma power in the brain. Um, so I think this is really impressive. And um, so feeling the vibe, a series of papers starting 2016 uh, collaborate, 
section um, demonstrated that light flickering and or sound clicking at 40 Hz reduces levels of amyloid beta and tau proteins and prevented um, death of neurons and preserved uh, synapses. And most recently in pilot clinical studies, the team showed also that 40 Hz light and sound stimulation was safe successfully increased brain activity and connectivity and appeared to produce significant clinical benefits in a small cohort of human volunteers with early stage Alzheimer's disease. And other groups have replicated this and actually Cognito Therapeutics has launched stage three clinical trials of light and sound stimulation as an Alzheimer's treatment. And there are devices that you can actually uh, that you can actually buy um, already that do these uh, you know that that stimulate your brain and with light. So um, yeah, yeah, I I have to check the link, but I had the link somewhere. Um, yeah, I think that's really great news, and um, I think it couldn't hurt to just do it while you age and we all age at some point uh, to just expose yourself to different ways of 40 hertz frequency once a day I don't think it can hurt anyone so at least that's what the study showed so um, yeah so if you have that sounds 40 hertz or you know yeah, sound is probably the most easy. I think on Spotify and YouTube there are different type of playlists that have these 40 hertz sounds. Thank you. I love the articles with good news, and this is good news. This is great news. And it makes me wonder where where 40 hertz exists in nature. And when you were talking about light and sound, I'm thinking about, um, for example, walking on the beach and uh, you know, on a lake and seeing the light glimmering and, and hearing wind in your ears or even, you know, walking in the woods and hearing wind rustle through leaves or, you know, in the morning dew is collected on the grass and then there's a breeze and the sunlight catches it. You know what I'm saying? Where, um, yes, what you said about, you know, expose ourselves to the 40 hertz and, and listen to whatever. Um, there are a lot of apps that are you know, exist now that, that we can listen to all kinds of things like that. But I, I wonder, I'm, I'm going to be some, do some Googling where these, where this situation might exist in nature, because, um, you know, I, I, these things like we were talking about, the benefits of movement are vast. And so the benefits of, of being alive and being able to experience our world and, and go outside are also vast and unknown and and that maybe this this is mimicking something that we might also already experience I wonder if um, just being around other people especially people who are in gamma states is like a really powerful way to magnify your own gamma states I know that heart math has studied like um, heart wave coherences and group dynamics. Um, but I could definitely see that uh, gamma brain states alone as a specific resonance just by being around people may, like just, I sort of view that like our 
the neural development through like a communication communicative lens um and i there's a sort of like this outstanding philosophical dilemma in communication science of like whether the reality is uh, socially constructed and so i sort of view view things like everything that we know as people is sort of like filtered through this bio filter of humanity and there's always this like it's anthropomorphization component to things and it's something that i would have really liked to see in the way that, that the pandemic was managed uh that was in my mismanaged as far as this regard is concerned but something to think about well i'm happy you brought that up as well as the hard math institute if anybody's never heard of it um and they're working towards compassion um, and they want some sort of scientific basis, um, it's a very good source. Um, there's also, I think, the altruism and compassion um, out of Stanford, um, I, I believe. And there, so there, there is research going on with this and in, in what you just mentioned. And, and I'm happy that you brought the brainwave states up. Um, it, it does seem when people are in like natural environments, um, where there isn't any sort of like, um, I guess like authority or structure, um, that people tend to gravitate towards certain people. And I wonder if this has something to do with it. And to try to be brief in the particular model that I've been working with. Um, the concept of vacuum decay, which is gamma loss, um, which is actually where gamma rays are produced in nature through like particle antiparticle collisions. And uh, maybe if there are, my model predicts white holes, um, which have been theorized uh, and they basically are as theorized, uh, but de the decay of a white hole would basically be um, vacuum decay, it would be a gamma loss decay, but it's where gamma rays are produced and it, uh, the, the, the induction of magnetism occurs and the, the overall wavelength of space is extended um, by the recursory effects of the uh, increased gamma. And it results in particle pair production and it's called the uh, Schwinger particle pair production. And so in the concept of like people talk about in like new age circles like getting to a higher frequency kind of concept um i feel like whether you're dealing whether we're talking about human systems or talking about like artificial intelligence and in terms of how to build intelligent systems there seems to be definitely a, a hierarchy in nature as far as any type of uh, if you want to divide space in any way to where you're talking about one thing relative to another thing where you have completely arbitrary set of parameters to start with then there's always going to be <clears throat> systemic biases that are based on the perceptual vectors of a local time frame and if you can get outside of the temporal model which the uh, my model predicts this is really recent it's really interesting that there may be objects namely white holes that can actually polarize time and that there may be time waves um, that are related to anti-strange quarks, which would be like conformal wraps of white holes that are outside the event horizon of our temporal universe, or basically at the, beyond, the, beyond the cosmic microwave background. 
that there could be these supermassive objects and inside of the black holes uh, where there's differentials occurring, which are protons and, and there's, there's still a perpendicular bisection of two fields where these white holes where light can't fall in and black holes where light can't escape are interfacing and black holes maybe don't actually have anything in them. They're act, they could actually be holes. They're literally just rate change differentials between this, this you know, but, it's, but there's ultimately a linear dynamic where there's, there's an emergent phenomena. It's an it's a inflationary, retrocausal, uh, rippling, complexifying system. Uh, but if you could get, get into like being able to quantify particles of time or waves of time, which there may be a way to do, then there could be ways to potentially access an archive of historical record that you can simulate the past uh, to like approachingly perfect resolution, but it's always a simulation. But when it's iterated in, into time relativity, you can get to like really, clo really close results of like, how a system would have evolved and in a specific set of conditions. But taking it back to just being around people, like from our perception, be 40, the, the 40 hertz, Victoria, that you're referring to, as far as like numerology or geometria or different types of manifestations of these in, in particle physics are concerned. Uh, it, it may be that there's an infinite amount of ways to access that resonant frequency, but the most abundant way to have a direct impact is like the things that are the most, you know, um, resonant of a specific person, like people being around their family, uh, if, if possible, you know, friends, anything that, that is this reinforcing um, to, to a high energy state of a person, then would, would, it, would naturally induce those, those rhythms, I think, so. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And just, I I think using this 40 hertz, you know, it can for sure hurt also in other circumstances. At least that's my hypothesis. You know, depression has been shown if untreated, uh, can leave literal holes in the brain of people. Um, so I think that this 40 hertz for whatever reason seems to prevent or like prevent neurons from dying and um, the neurons uh, preserve or maybe even make more synapses and um, this can only help in in all kinds of you know mental health and neurological um, issues or illnesses so you know i think um yeah i at least that's my hypothesis um that you know using this 40 hertz vibration or music sounds um different sounds um you know can for sure help also in um, in other illnesses and for sure there will be more studies coming out using this 40 hertz and in other uh, for other diseases um, it just takes a while until you know this clinical studies 
get financed and um, and get done and published. It takes years. Hopefully, there's funding for it because it's a very you know it's a very useful tool for people to know that they can use. So yeah, I hope just gets a lot of funding and um, yeah, we help spread the knowledge. <laughs> Yeah, I have to jump in quickly, uh, Katerina, and admire the spontaneous answers you have. And this is actually uh, showing the great analytical and connecting the dots skills you have. So you're not having like a script and you're reading from. It's uh, the spontaneous action of everyone in the room uh, showing the wisdom and um, great thoughts, which it's, it's coming with the flow and the vibe of energy of science. So I admire this space for this. And I feel that the neurogenesis and neuroplasticity at its max here. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I was just like, uh, we were, uh, Victoria and I, we were messages messaging in the back how fascinating it is how these since we started these the science news again how these really interesting discussions come about and how much we enjoy them and how it brings us you know to have ideas and to share you know spread the word of useful um, stuff and knowledge and yeah, thank you. Thank you for noticing because we were just also talking about that. It's a fact. <laughs> yeah, we're here. We we have our you know our different interests, and then we bring articles to share that you know that we may seek because of our interests, and then it's our hope that people will find something useful or something they'd like to listen to, and then that people come and share a discussion in the chat and share a discussion here on the stage. It means a lot. And it's, you know, it's all that we hope for. We are, this is an offering from us really. And we hope, as Katarina said, that we're sharing information and people can take it and, you know, share it out in the world as they will. Well, I think it uh, just shows, um, you know, and this is something as a language hack we'll call it, um, being open-minded, uh, thinking outside the box. These are sayings that, you know, were taught to me at, at a young age. And, um, I, I would keep on, uh, I guess, repeating those sayings to myself, uh, if I was ever being closed minded or attached to a certain view. And, um, with this show is it just like how amazing, um, the two of you are and everyone in this room um, because a lot of people just say oh be open-minded or think outside the box but they don't do that themselves they don't practice it themselves it's uh, clear um, that uh, the people in this room obviously do and I think that's what uh, truly allows these conversations to take shape yeah thank you so much for those kind words and I think it um, yeah it's interesting that you shared that you know your parents teach you that and it's interesting to me to follow you know that's why 
I mean, it started being interesting to me uh, since Victoria started this pre-interview of the scientists we invite, how they came to, you know, become the scientists they are and to do the work they do and to come up with the ideas, basically. Um, I think they have so many different paths of uh, of doing that and and thinking like that and it's kind of really interesting since people that we invite they don't get anything out of it right they don't get any payment I mean you know the exposure increased exposure of their work is real wouldn't really you know be worth the effort they just do it because they like also helping spreading the word and like um, information and their science to be out there for everyone available and explained and probably it's a pre-selection of people that kind of are open already and that's most of the time the people that we get here and um, and I think it maybe also shaped all of us a little bit since also you know the types of work we we invite and read about it's very different because our interests are very different so i think it's kind of a positive feedback loop this kind of group and connection is creating to enforce that even more i think people probably we all had the predisposition basically but I think it gets enforced more and more. And I think the discussions are getting more and more interesting over time. I don't know. That's at least my observation. We concur. <laughs> yeah, Oppenheimer has <laughs> really interesting. I second oh. this. I second and third and the infinite. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, often I really ask some really interesting questions about why is it helping out of, you know, the 40 hertz and when we listen to this, I don't think we know exactly why, but the only thing is these studies have shown what it does in the cell, it um, kind of... Um, triggers like repair mechanism of the DNA in the neurons and then you know they are healthier so they don't die they don't accumulate these these misfolded proteins uh, because of that and then they are able to make connections with other neurons again there we go <laughs> you know making connections is important and um, but why exactly 40 hertz work so well i don't think we know that at least you know but if anyone has read more about this and knows the answer um please feel free to to share but so far i don't know if i if i in the next days find out more about it i can share it but for now i i don't have an answer i can just feel us we're all gonna go mad googling <laughs> 
It has to do with an earlier article, actually, you mentioned Victoria, which is acute articulation and the phonetics and the sounds of um, the letters. So uh, they found out, and this is just like early memory, like from 10 years I remember this. They found out that um, the clarity of the letters, it's uh, coming to this uh, frequency of the sound, the gamma, but... um, Without further ado, I will do Google it and research it in Google Scholar. To uh, it's it's a great actually opportunity for us to have a great discussion again on this topic because I feel that it will help a lot of us in biohacking, and because my mindset set to biohacking, I've been reading a lot in the, um, uh, Limitless from Jim Quick at the morning, and it's 11:59. Uh, BM right now, uh, AM right now. So uh, my mindset in this direction. So sorry that I keep referring to biohacking, but again, it has to do with um, all of this gamma waves and uh, frequencies of the brain. Yeah. So this is my limited information about this. That it's, it's it has to do with the phonetics and the sounds of the letters clarity. Thank you. I don't know, Kyle. Since you're here. Do you know when people meditate and make these, I don't know, is it humming noises, you know, these, is the vibration by any chance in the 40 hertz frequency, you know, those sounds that um, monks make sometimes when they meditate, do do you know, maybe, (laughs) maybe they hack the system there. So I did that and you I could there is um a structure and some attached to the structure but there is a story about somebody going up to someone and saying you're doing that wrong and then they took a knife and uh just sliced through a stone um because it's the devotion and the heart that really matter and not the um rigidity and i think also what matters um is the frequency so it's something that i practiced um for several years in a very small room um, in order to kind of feel the reverberations um, because I remember being um, on a trek towards the base camp of Everest and um, I, I was lucky enough to be in a monastery uh, in the Himalayas when there were um, a bunch of monks uh, and the Lama of the monastery um, uh, doing mantra and it for me was uh, extremely powerful um, so I, I practiced it and yes um, there are different um, you could go on YouTube and uh, that was Om Mani Padme Hum um, and uh, then there are different um, Om chants uh, in different frequencies um, that have uh, um, a different, like, physiological response or feel. 
You're welcome to chant in this room anytime you like. Thank you. Something else I've been working on, actually, I wish I could post a picture here, is a an alphabet <clears throat> that's based in uh, Hebrew numerological tradition, and it's I tried to blend like I was did a lot of research um, of just uh, cultural histories, I guess, uh, that for an epic that I'm working on, and I got interested in noticing. There was I was seeing forks and languages around key words, and that were sometimes obvious, sometimes not obvious. But it seemed like they were often related to, um, I mean, you know, it may be through my personal opinions, but macroscopic uh, cultural ideologies being played out that uh, that seemed to they seemed to be sort of these entanglements between a fork and a common word. Or a singular single word where most of the language, especially you know, in your Indo-European languages specifically, are were um, uh, otherwise relatively similar, and so I started thinking about how can I codify speech through just what a basic uh, consonant formation can be, and uh, it's interesting to think, and it kind of relates to the concept of a white hole actually, and. <laughs> I think of Star Wars and the idea of a, a, a sword of light, um, and the word and the like in the you know biblical Old Testament, the word was the beginning uh, concept uh, and this you know uh, periodicity of sound. Um, but the the alphabet I, I created this alphabet that basically shows that there's 33 unique sounds that can be iterated. Um, that are based on the closure of the mouth or the throat um, orifice, and then the um, attenuation of the vocal cord, whether it's attenuated or not. So like P and B, the only, their only difference is that there's an attenuation of the vocal cord on B. Same with T and D and S and Z. And I actually was able to build out um, the f first, the full Latin alphabet, and then uh, I thought more, and I figured there's an, an LH that's like a sound, it's like an LH, and uh, but it, and it uses Q as CH, and X is a and um, uh, a rolling R is like a DX. Um, but there was there's um, A E I O U, uh, and I've there's an interesting paper that I'm going to have to sh uh, share. I'm going to try to find it here. Um, but it's based on a study of toroidal patterns in magnetic fields as different vowels were being pro uh, produced, and they were studying sort of the geometry of the waveform of different of speech. Um, but it's interesting. I, I was not aware and I, of the relationship between um, gamma wave and in the brain and uh, human language, and I'm reading about it now. Um, but the, the, the characters of this alphabet are all based on, uh, it's essentially a string theoretical alphabet where the, the only uh, systems, the building blocks I used was a dot or a, or a dash basically, but it's a curve or a dot. And um, the, the, whether you extend the curve uh, through a periodicity uh, like an S or you um, bend it around an angle 
or you uh, phase invert it um, uh, around like a, a, a dot or a, a dot that's extended into a line uh, in a different dimension. So it's just kind of like three dimensional shapes. Um, but a lot of very intuitive letters are there and a lot of uh, like there's Greek, um, Latin, uh, Aramaic, uh, Georgian, a lot of different influences in the letter design. And I think that the Kartvelian language, interestingly enough, in Georgia was, uh, the Kartvelia was onto probably a very similar concept. But I just like to point out, uh, and there are, I have pictures of this in my Instagram, which is in my, the link is in my bio here, but um, I would just like to make, make, point out a potential connection between speech and um, gamma waves um, and uh, the idea of uh, the, 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 the vocal sh chakra, I guess I could describe it as, is this uh, system that we have where there's this binary, you have this, this resonance cavity of the mouth and the nose and you can uh, open and close these two valves uh, and send resonance through it. And this LH sound is sort of this mediating uh, charge uh, that you can generate. So there's a certain, certain amount of electrical potential that we can generate through just the basic biological structure um, with, with, a, with a couple parameters like open, close, on and off. Um, but it is interesting to, to, to th see those two paired together and I'm curious to see how, uh, uh, whatever I might be thinking about from here on out. Can I ask a question? You said, you mentioned the term a toroidal pattern. Do you mean the shape of a torus for sound? Yeah, it's like a particular uh, fluctuation that? of a torus where it's, it's, a, it's like a curled string type looking pattern. Uh, like the, a, a loop would be like a dimension and it's just based on how the torus is being distorted you know by that particular sound but you can look at the distortions from different perceptions you know which could be seen as as different um, phase phases of that wave and you can renormalize it into a torus or cancel it out so it's kind of like just different pathways or waveforms there's a really good article. I'm going to try to find it because it shows the pictures and it's extremely well done. And it's, it's got a lot of, um, a lot of data and a couple, I think two or three experiments as a part of it, but it, uh, it shows how particularly vowels are being linked with brain states and especially long vowels are like maybe, uh, more hypnotic. So if you speak uh, a short vowel, it's more the natural, relaxing attenuation of, of a pattern that where that where the resonance of that of that sound is is bioresonant long vowels um, maybe have personal advantages and dis potentially disadvantages for other people i'm not so sure but there seems to be a link between long vowels and um, the induction of brain states in in other other organisms, I believe. So I'm thinking about lullabies then, because that's what it sounds like. There's a French lullaby. Well, to say take a nap or go to sleep is fe do do. So the song is, you know, singing fe do do. And, and those are, they have two long vowels right there, altering, hopefully altering the brain state.
Interesting. Yeah, that's that sounds like it's that. Yeah. So that that is really interesting, Kyle. What you mentioned, and I wonder, you know, all the language studies I did. The problem is I don't have the sound of the people. You know, I just have the written text. Um, but let's say we could just, um, you know, just make something speak the te the text and then, you know, there's a lot of studies trying to find the tremble in the voice and stuff like that to predict, like if you have Parkinson and something like that, but it would be really interesting to study not the words itself, but abstract it even more and study the frequencies of the different words that people use and then see, because that would be really easy to have this spectrum. And then if you have certain type of frequencies, a lot of times it, that could, if that would also correlate uh, you know, with things like depression and um, things like that. And if you would train yourself maybe to speak in other frequencies, if that could also help additionally. So not just the words, but also in the frequencies kind of that you tend to speak more. I don't know if that makes sense, but would be at least interesting to look at uh, because anything... So, you know, the most studies that are out there and getting into this big journals are all about brain imaging. But it's crazy expensive and unfeasible to do brain imaging on a large scale. And especially in countries that don't have these expensive machines. It's ridiculous. So, and then the, the, the good thing and the important thing about looking at frequencies and not words would be that maybe this would be a way of analyzing it in any language if people use these frequencies more it doesn't matter in what language it's a good you know screening for a different mental health or neural disorders in general you know uh, because the problem is also with language, different cultures reflect different language types. So this approach is not one-to-one, -one, um, you know, you cannot use it one-to-one -one from one language to another. But if we abstract it even more, maybe we could, maybe, I don't know, could be completely not true. <laughs> like, I'm just thinking out loud here. And hi, Clarissa, please go ahead. Oh my God, Katarina! I I love everything you're you're always working on some amazing things, and I'm always excited to to hear everything you're saying. The only thing that I will add is like there's nothing wrong with adding um, multiple sites in a you know blind you know RCT, right? There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's I think there's so much for us to learn. And there is so much for us to really understand and we don't understand anything yet. Right. So, so I think, you know, you're onto something, which most of us are always trying to do. 
right, is always trying to figure out like what modalities are going to work and what modalities are not going to work. And, you know, so I, so I feel like what we're doing now in, in the world is very different, right? Like I have been using AI for at least a decade to try to figure out some of these like Alzheimer's and dementia portraits for, for my own patients. Right. So, so this is not new for me, right? It's new for people, right? It's not new. If we sit there and say, you know, what if we were to, we, what if we were to isolate out and, you know, start, start looking at what hip hop culture, remember Columbia had an exceptional study, Katarina, Columbia has an intergenerational study on long-term illness, right? Chronic illness, starting from Alzheimer's. So, you know, there's so many things that we should be looking at versus just sitting there and saying like, okay, you know, is only these things are going to be receptive for our people or are these only modalities, right? So anyway, I would encourage you to look at the Columbia study that looked at the intergenerational effects of Alzheimer's. They were using youth to help the Alzheimer's patients to get to a, to a different point of memory using hip hop and dance. They, the, the children, right? the Confederates took it to their families and showed their families, listen, this is how we could avoid, you know, Alzheimer's in the future or dementia in the future. So it was, it was a beautiful intergenerational study that was happening around. And at first, in, the, the, its first inception was Alzheimer's with hip hop. So so I, I think we should always open up ourselves to, to new modalities too. Like, so anyway, I'm here to just share like interesting research I've been part of and, and interventions I've designed to, to help. So anyway, I I'll be quiet now. So thanks for having me guys. Well, well thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Kyle. Yeah. Like, uh, different modalities. Um, so I, I've spent a great deal of time building uh, friendships with um, with people from different cultures. So they have a different way of feeling and thinking, as well as communicating through language. Um, and so being able to, I guess, understand that and um, then pick up on uh, some certain ways that maybe the way in which they um, think or feel, um, has an impact on, uh, their being. And this is a friend of mine, um, who's like a best friend, um, and, and he's from India. And, you know, I would always say, I think, uh, this, um, and he'd say, I feel this. Um, and I, I remember it got to me once and I was like, no, 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 you, you mean you, you think this? He's like, no, no, I'm feeling it. And um, I was it frustrated me, but I was like, okay. Um, and then I, I started to actually pay attention to that. Um, and, and I started doing the same thing. And then I realized um, the shift 
of um, uh, just even the the language in which we communicate and how we communicate has an impact on our well-being uh, and others' well-being. And so um, to be more, I guess, um, there, and, and this is actually Carl Gustav Jung um, would talk about uh, on one side, there's uh, thinking, and on the other side, there's feeling, um, and to be balanced uh, in between. So um, just the, the simple uh, way that we talk to ourselves and others day to day has a direct impact on our well-being and so sometimes getting out of it's sometimes unlearning um as much as it is learning because we've picked up certain um i guess ways of uh habitual ways of thinking or communicating um that can impact uh our experience of everyday life and during the pandemic i actually made sure that um, my friends um, and and the people that I was uh, contained with um, made sure that we didn't get lazy with our language um, because then it would just have been saying the same thing or texting the same thing to the same people over and over again, um, having to be confined to the same place. Um, and it just, it. I even said to um, uh, my roommate, that if we get lazy with language uh, while we're stuck here, um, that might be to our de detriment. Um, and now being in this room um, and kind of learning from certain people that I've learned from on Clubhouse, um, I I've benefited greatly from that. And also someone mentioned, um, I think it was Kyle talking about uh, tone and stuff. Sometimes it's more important how we say what we say to another person um, instead of what we say. Because if our tone is totally abrasive, it might not be um, taken well. I totally agree. I, I think ultimately what you're talking about has like, future degenerative styles across cognition but i think for right now i think we need to like reduce alzheimer's disease symptoms in the immediate so if like you know if either of you i don't know whose profile is who or if there's distinct profiles i think you know maybe if you could help us get to things that that are triggering that could produce yeah, uh, suboptimal states, right? So that's what we got to figure out. You know, I mean, if we're going to do any strides on this is Alzheimer's disease symptom reduction, right? So I think maybe if we could look at what we could do for the future that kind of, kind of just minimizes that for people because we've seen it too. You know, in my practice, I've seen it in, in, in the 30s. And I don't like that, like, I, you know, and it's been 10 years that I've seen that in the 30s. So I don't know. I think we have to act on, on larger frames um, and and start, you know, really trying to do things that 
that actually have like impact on, on like reversing some of that, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. To say that I'm worried in the future, uh, there's a huge mental health decline that's happening in the future, which we don't have the clinician uh, support for for what the demand is in our country, in the U.S. So there's so many things that are probably weighing on my mind, too. So, so anyway, uh, I'm just here to just provide like the clinical side of things that that we have to be careful of too and and the clinical side of things that we're lacking in and if and if we could possibly zero in that gap you know if we could all think of things and and you know definitely partner to help avoid some of the things that we have seen right like uh, i don't know that's just me as as a as a practitioner, scientist, administrator, right? Like I'm just saying, these are the things that I see and I want, I want us to not do kumbaya, fuck kumbaya. I want us to really like figure out what we could do. I don't want us to waste time and sit here like, and, and not do shit that could help other people. We don't want people to like absolutely be decompensating and, and not, not be doing well or like think about the early inception like do we really want people having suicidal ideation and we're just ignoring it do we want people to sit there and say like i have been having these these different mental health issues that are really concomitant in my mind right like you'll you know in my practice i have seen like i have these struggling compounding things voices you know dreams and i'm like all right like if we don't i if we can't look at this now when do we do it do we wait for the person to kill themselves do we wait for the person to to do something that is more extreme to themselves or do we wait for some some like grandstanding shit that we don't need you know what i mean so anyway i'm talking very passionately as a as a provider, as a, you know, as a clinician, as a, as a person that does not want future uh, degeneration, we want to capture things that could help us, right? I talked about the Columbia study and I talked about how we could get that. And then I don't know where you went, Kyle, that was the opposite of what I went for. So I'm just trying to figure out like, what things can we do to, to, always make sure that that we don't see that consistently happening like let's let's narrow down on like the youth need more more of us like like i don't it's not my you know it's i was never trained in youth and i am i'm just looking at everything that we've been doing as a country and the more divisiveness that occurs, I don't know that that is helping us, right? And I don't know that that anything is working for us. But I feel like we need to address a lot of things that are occurring for the future generations and for even for our own sake of, of self, right? Like, 
our own sake of self. So anyway, I'll, I will be quiet. Victoria, Katarina, you know that I, I could keep going on about this, but I just feel like uh, we shouldn't be using this platform as a place to just be like, oh, let's bitch about shit. No, let's get people to, to rile up. Hey, Kyle, get everybody to rile up. Like if it takes, like, let's, let's do things that are just uh, like different. Like let's have, let's have real movement around it. Like if we use corporate to use movement and nonprofit, like let's do a full on body thing that we could really show and demonstrate. Like if this project, one project shows that we could eliminate some of the angst, some of the, you know, anything, you know what I mean? I'm just saying. Yeah, thank you. And and we're we are um appreciate you being here and and um appreciate and recognize your enthusiasm and the scope of your work as well. And also we we create this space for everybody to to come to learn, to share their interests and to take action as as each can in their own life. And everybody has different interests, capabilities, experience, backgrounds, and limitations as well. And it's important that we each, kind of along the line of what Kyle was sharing, it's important that each of us recognize what we can do in our own lives, even outside of a clinical setting. So we were talking, you know, to go back to the 40 hertz and depression. It's important to move and eat and take a walk in nature and talk to friends. Those are things that, that you know, are inherently part of being human that we, we don't need a clinical study to let us know that's true. However, we do need clinical studies for many reasons, but one of them is to also get funding so that people can afford to do what they need to do and have help to do what they need to do. So I, I want to make... Um, there's room for all of that here. There's room for all of us to recognize what we can do in our in our own, you know, in our in our own lives. I, I have a friend who's um, made a, a beautiful documentary called Wisdom Gone Wild, and it's kind of traveling. It's um, traveling the U.S. It's just going over to Korea, to South Korea now for film festival, and it's about her journey with her mother through 16 years of caring for her through dementia and it expands the idea of what's possible with care for people in dementia mentioning you know spending time taking people to museums reading and we you know we hear so much about the power of music with um, you know dementia care and so you know it's an example again of of um, just where we can each take the power in our own lives and and those conversations are, they're all relevant. So, you know, please take, you know, do what you can. Yes, um, you know, lead, lead your fight and, and bring people with you. And, and we have room, you know, we have room for, for all, all, of the, all of the ways that we can each be leaders. Yeah, um, I was around somebody today that was just, oh, I'm stupid. And I'm like, why would you say that to yourself? Um, first of all, like just learn, adapt and keep moving. Um, but it, it, he's like, he was like, well, I keep on making the same mistake over and over again. I'm like, well, telling yourself you're stupid isn't going to help that. 
you know what i think that's the biggest that's the biggest fallacy that we all like don't even realize you right like you know i have dealt with my own family around degenerative conditions i've dealt with my own family around cancer and i will say like i think the first call is that accusatory that like self and you know self persecutory moment and yeah you know kyle like that serves nobody right and it's like victoria says like we have to look at things from all angles right and i think you know the biggest part of of everything is always looking at ways that we have contributed to something better for people right instead of looking at for things that that weren't better for people and i mean even like when you lose people right you you contributed to their life in ways that you didn't right i'm an infectious disease behavioral scientist i worked for 20 years in in hiv aids and i did everything i could to extend out life i did everything i could to make sure that people had dignity i had i made sure that everybody had access to things that they they didn't have access to right I made sure that my entire life's work was about making sure that people lived longer than what the fuck people said they were not going to live longer for. So I designed many incredible trials, many incredible things that people were saying to me, don't do it, don't waste your time. And let me tell you something, at the end of the day, we did everything to extend out another 20 years, right? Listen, I'm only 50 years old. And I started my work in HIV AIDS when I was 20. And I made sure that I did not overlook a single thing to make people's lives better. And I didn't want to look, overlook anything that made people's lives deficient, right? So, you know, today I look at things and and look at diseases and say what is it that we could do that we're not looking at right now and what is it that we haven't seen and that we're overlooking right and that's how i approach disease and that's how i approach things that we're we're not comfortable with all the time right at the end of the day i can say this about a few things right like i could say that you know I, I tried everything in the world to, to extend out life for everything around me as I did it, but I couldn't extend it for my own mother, right? Like I watched my mother die before me. And then two years later, I watched my own dad die and there was nothing I could do. So I, I, I just always think that there's, even beyond ourselves and even beyond what we could do and be even beyond what we think, you know, there's always a way to find things for others that even from our own, like crevice of our own heart that doesn't even exist at some times, right? You could always find it and always look at outside of yourself, right? Like I didn't, listen, I'm a straight woman of color. My mom is black, my dad is Latino. Like, 
there was nothing about me that had advantages or anything. You know what I'm saying? Like there were, there were no advantages for me in the world, but I still went out there when I was young and said, no, you're not going to be treating anyone lesser than anything. And I was lesser than everything y'all. They thought of me as less than everything all the way through Michigan and Harvard. (laughs) Yo, you know what I mean? So I'm saying as a live testimony to, to what is there, like I could only sit back and tell my parents, I tried everything I could do to make you proud. And I tried everything I could do to make everything else in the world, something that needed to happen. So listen, that's my fuel. That is my fuel. And you know, I'm in the room because that's my fuel. My fuel is let's not have people suffer when they don't need to suffer. Let's have, let's have things, you know, even when our own lives suck, right? Like plenty of times (laughs) my own life has sucked, but it didn't stop me from getting up and saying, I got to fight for everyone else because this is temporary. Everything is temporary. We're going to always get to a better place. So anyway, that's just my thing. And that's just my little personal story. And, you know, the loss of my parents fueled me the most. And I got to tell you, today, I am a very different person than I ever have been in my life. And I was always fueled by fire. I was, I'm a Leo. I'm fueled by so much shit that doesn't even need fuel. And today I'm telling you, like we, you know, when I come into a room, I just think if there's things we could do for people, we got to just do it. It doesn't even matter how we get it done. We just got to do it. So anyway, that's my, that's my, my little story. And, and it's, and in and of itself, it's not sad. It's fuel. And, you know, that's my fuel. So thanks for having me here. And thanks for listening to me and, and entertaining my ideas of fuel. So thanks. Thank you for keeping it real. And you just answered your question. Um, you just lived through it. Um, and to teach other people how to do that or to feel, like, confident to, to be able to um, do that is, is essential. Um, so, uh, there's a difference between cynicism in psychology and ancient cynicism, like the cynic philosophers. And so I woke up to a lot of issues, um, earlier on, um, because of being through certain stuff and the way I went about it, I tried to do my best to, uh, what you done. And, um, and, and then I would see uh, friends uh, take a, a, a knack of interest or some interest in particular topics um, in society. And then instead of actually going and doing what you just said, um, they'll go out and call blasphemy, um, and, uh, and, and really look for the, 
you know, the blasphemers and, and uh, attack them. And this is not what I taught to my uh, friends. And I reminded them of this. And they are now changing their tune. But it, it's something that I, I see because it, nobody wants to see what's happening when they um, wake up to what's actually happening to people um, who are poor and impoverished and, um, and going through, you know, whatever. Um, but once people do, then it, it kind of, that's another thing to absorb, like another aspect to absorb is then what does somebody do with that information? And um, it, it can be uh, upsetting. So the way that I've seen people is like get behind the keyboard and attack or come on social media and attack. And you said there's a better way to use this app. You're absolutely right. Um, and, um, and I think literacy uh, is very important and we're all learning together um, in somewhat of an, uh, a social media ecosystem um, where I get to come in and learn from uh, the people in this room um, who have, you know, much more academic uh, prowess uh, than I do myself. And so I, um, I, I get on here and learn from those people as much as possible to build up my intellectual understanding of the world that I live in um, so I can better do what you just said. Um, so, yeah. Thank you so much, Kyle, for that heartfelt response. And um, we need to say goodnight. This has been an amazing night with so much sharing. And, and um, we look forward to seeing you next, next Wednesday night when we'll have more science news to offer. And we'll look forward to more of your perspectives. And it's been great to see you. So, Katarina, would you like to say goodnight? Yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for coming, sharing, contributing. And this has been such a wonderful discussion and so many layers. Um, so it's really fascinating how this different research topics elicit then many different layers of discussions, which is wonderful. And um, I think what we can say is using knowledge combined with connection, uh, making connection uh, with people um, is what we need and, and keep learning and moving up. So that's what we'll do. And so if you want to join us again, we'll have a room um, on Monday about a new, new morphic um technology that kind of um, sh um shapes like that is shaped by um metaplasticity so it kind of um, replicates the real plasticity in the brain i think it will be really interesting as a whole group coming although i might have to reschedule it i'm not sure i'm traveling on those days so um, but just in case, I'll for sure make sure to reschedule like a day ahead and let everyone know what the next 
there is. Um, and um, yeah, and then we'll have, um, you know, the science newsroom and the double slit experiments, but done on time and what the results are there. I think this will be also a really interesting discussion. So anyways, feel free to join us again. Um, and we'll also have in the future again some climate newsrooms uh, weekly too. Maybe not next week, but, uh, you know, from the week after on. So, yeah, join us. Thank you for the discussions also in the chat. And I hope you all have a good night, morning, wherever you are. <laughs> and I uh, hope to hear you all back soon. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.